difference we are in, in the state of war, in the state of economic depression, in the state of depletion of the resources of our planet because of the greed of psychopaths who thought they could create their own reality. Well, look at the reality they created. You're listening to Behind the Headlines on the SOT Radio Network, the world for people who think. Hello, welcome back everyone to Behind the Headlines. I'm Harrison Cayley, as usual. Joining me, Joe Quinn. Hi there. Neil Bradley. Hi everyone. And back again, Jason Martin. Hola, como estas? Today, title of our show, The Hidden History of the 20th Century, Donald Trump and Progressivism. So I guess we're going to be talking about those things. Oh, yeah. The question is, how are they all connected? How are they all connected? It's all connected. Let us not entertain outrageous conspiracy theories about the President Donald Trump. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Well, I guess to start so, out with then, you know, I, how, how are these things connected? <laughs> What's progressivism? How are they? What is progressivism? Progressivism is, well, it's kind of, it gets a little bit wonky, but basically it's the idea that things in the past were shit. And they're better today, and they're going to be better tomorrow. And we're moving towards a basically a secular scientific paradise of transhumanism type of stuff. You know, I'm mean, just that, that everything's getting better. The world's just getting so awesome every day, and that it used to be just so bad. And we used to live in this world of crippling religious oppression and disease and horror. And thanks to uh, modernity. Um, and modernism and the industrial revolution and the post-industrial revolution, we are now moving into August Comte's kind of uh, secular religious paradise. Mm-hmm. I suppose that would be kind of what yeah. it is. Well, yeah, I, I mean, that's interesting because the the um, I was watching a, uh, one of these, I don't know if anybody's seen them, but there's uh, Oxford University debates. Oh, yeah. Uh, I have them now and again. They have various famous people on and stuff to, to they, they table them present a motion, and then they have for and against. And uh, one of them was, uh, was, a few years ago, I think it was, was living the American dream. And it was, are you living the American dream? Or do you think people should live the American dream? Or what is the American dream, basically? And one of the, one of the guys for it said that basically the American dream is, in essence, the idea that uh, every generation will have a better standard of living than the previous one. Well, he's a dirty progressivist. Uh, maybe. That's not what the American dream is. That's what he said. That's what he said. In essence, it was that it would be a continual improvement, uh, generation on generation. No, that everybody would live a, happier and better and more complete or whatever lives, whatever way you want to describe it. Every generation. That I mean, that's, that's what a lot of people think of America. That's where you go to America, yeah. right? You no, go you, go to, you go to America because it is a very free country. Yeah, I mean, considering, yeah, it's freedom. Free, yeah, basically, freedom. But then, the I mean, I mean, I, I've lived so far in two countries. It's less free in France than it is in America. Things that you can say in America, you can't say in France. Things that you can do in America, you can't do in France. And that gets us to the heart of the problem because freedom isn't free. No, it, it costs folks like you and me. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that's that's what whether or not it's actually true. Like, forget arguing whether or not it's true that America is, is this great free country. Um, historically, when you ask people, why do you come to America? What's great about America? They oh, it's the freest country in the world. That's whether that's like propaganda. I'll take a step, whatever, you know, it could be propaganda, 
but that's what people are sold on. People aren't sold that necessarily things are better. Yeah. People are sold on the, the American ideal. The American ideal is that by the sweat of your brow, you can determine your life, your quality of life. You can achieve something. You can be something. You can make something. You can live. And people will generally leave you alone and let you do it. A meritocracy. And basically, the, 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 the theory is a meritocracy. I mean, America is pretty meritocratic. But, but from, yeah, from a social, I like to think that, uh, about that from a, from a social point of view. Uh, in the U.S., that uh, kind of it being the freest country uh, in the world, where people can come to get some freedom and live free and do whatever they want, it's kind of like setting up a big compound or a big enclosure that's full of crack cocaine, mm-hmm. and it says to all the addicts, "Come and be as free as you want to be, to, to snort as much or do whatever, do as much crack cocaine as you possibly want." You know, because I suppose it gets to the point. I mean, that's one. Yeah, that's true what you said about about America. But the question is, what is the responsibility? Is there any responsibility uh, on the part of a government or leadership in a country to structure the country in a particular way? Or should it be something we just it should be just chunk of, a chunk of land where you put a bunch of people and they all just <coughs> work it out yourselves? Mm. Is there any call for any leadership? Like, is it just like. Well, Do what yeah. thou wilt shall be the whole of the law. Basically. No, no it's not, not, laws, not right? anything like that. I mean, there's this sort of idea that it, it is the, the core of American, the, the American ideal of freedom, which is the sort of positive and negative rights. The idea that the government is there to ensure a certain number of rights, like uh, don't steal people's property. So that you have the right to not have your property stolen. Mm. And uh, other people don't have the right to take your property. You know, that's right. sort of these basic things. The government exists purely and simply as an instrument for securing the basic rights given in the Constitution and the Bill of Rights and managing the interface of America internationally, mm. right? So to, conducting trade, mm. making sure that trade goes along and fighting wars for anybody who wants to, to hurt us, basically. That's the, the basic core ideal of the freedom. So government's role is essentially to ensure rights. So they, they have a police force or whatever in court systems, magistrates, to decide whether or not somebody stole something or whether or not somebody is, you know, whatever. The American government ideal. I mean, if you read sort of like the Federalist Papers and the Thomas Jefferson and uh, not so much Paine, but, you know, Paine was a dirty socialist. But, mm-hmm. I mean, generally speaking, if you, if you read Benjamin Franklin and stuff like that, you'll see that that was the idea that they had. You know, the, the government should be very limited. If you read, like, uh, upstairs, I, I left sitting around the, the book of Thomas Jefferson's papers. If you read his letters, it's, they're just filled with this discussion of how big should the state be? How much money should the state have? What should the state be doing? It should be step, it should be getting out of the way of the citizens and so on and so forth. So when people sort of harp on, like, libertarians, as, as wishy-washy as libertarians are, when they harp on about that stuff, they're actually just basically going back to the founding documents and the letters and the the, the, the articles being written to promote it, to promote the American government in, you know, the 1700s. And they're just saying what the founding fathers of America basically. And has it worked out that way? Well, no. I mean, it stopped working that way, especially, I would say it was in the late 1800s that it stopped, in the 19th century that it stopped. And, um, but I mean, most modern people put it at around 1929 when the New Deal came in. Um, that's what I when I that's what everyone kind of can pretty much agree that that's what it really happened. But before then, there had been a lot of stuff like the Sherman Act, which is the Antitrust Act to to, to break up and then to go after Standard Oil and things like that. Mm-hmm. 
there was a lot of stuff going on and there was a lot of French philosophers, you know, who were, who were basically writing kind of socialist philosophy and scientific socialism, secularism, and so forth. That many Marx was born there, and August Compton. Love me some Marx. And all right, Jason, carry on. Right. I mean, Neil, do you have something to say about that? About the war in Vietnam. Well, I thought we would really begin by outlining what America is as opposed to what it ought to be or should be or ideally was or might have been or and so on, you know, begins with the latent acknowledgement today by U.S. leaders that the U.S. is exceptional. And what they're kind of saying between the lines is we finally acknowledge that we are an empire now, um, that their mandate is global. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm not even... Leading into Trump, I'm just using him as an example here. When he becomes president of the USA, he doesn't really become the president of a country because there's a massive, massive international apparatus that he technically becomes the head of, but of which he only knows a fragment about as he enters that office. Um, This is the product of this 20th century, of the hidden history of the 20th century. Um, We are all living in America, as the song goes, um, and I don't mean that obviously geographically, I don't mean that obviously in many of the nominal senses, we don't throw away the American flags and so on. We don't all speak the language, but we do all live um, under the norms, under the regime that's developed by and large through the American government slash corporations, you know, the overall infrastructure that's created through the course of the 20th century. Hmm. Well, I mean, the how fact, do we get here? Well, the fact, yeah, exactly, the fact that we're living. Uh, the, the claim that we are all living under an American, effectively an American empire, global empire, is is testified to by the fact that people in Australia, people in pretty much everywhere around the world, were protesting, at least some sections in many different countries and, and countries as far away as you can get geographically from America. Uh, people were protesting about the election of, a, of an American president. Well, not only that, but they were watching the election. We're watching the it and having an interest in it. So mean, that, that in itself When's says, the last time you, you sat down to watch the election of the Polish president? Or Thailand. Or Thailand, you know? Nobody cares. You know? Uh, or Myanmar. Well, yeah, I mean, America is, is a massive empire. Or even, the, Brit- says, even, the, even the British, who would be maybe second in the pecking order, pretty far down. I mean, the only other pe- one that people would show, uh, maybe not similar, but certainly... Uh, you know, a decent level of interest in uh, in terms of a, a, the elections of a leader of another country would be in Russia. You know, especially in the West, especially. Mm. Uh, but in, in, I suppose that's to the size of Russia and the stuff that's going on today. It's seen as, I mean, it's almost like we. <clears throat> I didn't watch the inauguration of Putin. Not the inauguration, but you're aware of it and you have an interest in it, and, you, and it's, on, it's in the news. I know his name. You know who Putin is. You know a bit more about Putin than that, Jason. <laughs> I know. <laughs> uh, no, He's a nice guy. Neil's question. What was it again? Sorry. I don't think I had a question. You don't know the, well, how do we get there? Is that what you said? Well, yes. Uh, how do we get here? Um, because nominally we're all in, this is what's taught to, to um, tens of millions of students, not just in the West, but we nominally live under a Westphalian system of sovereign nation states. Yeah. 
in which the country you're born in has its own set of rules. It may mimic a neighboring country. It may adapt. It may, it may take them in, you know, in large part and actually essentially mimic a sister country, say, if you're in former colony of France or something. But nominally, we all live under the idea, it's only an idea, it's not an actuality, that we're of this country or that country. Um, the, the, in the real world, it's extremely different. We actually live under one system, a one-world government, in effect. Um, it doesn't really matter whether we call it the U.S. government mm. or not, um, mm. yeah. because that only tends to confuse, because an American listening to this, who is not aware of the scale of it, can can rightfully say, hang on, no, I, I, that's not true at all. I was born in America, and I know Americans, and I know the American government, and that's what I know, and that's what is. And he he's right, too. Mm-hmm. It's not that I argue with that worldview, of his, um, but there is an underlying objective worldview which differs for all of us, um, and we're we're in a situ- we're in a time now with the latest um, upset being Trump's presidency, where it, it's creating statements like um, just just two days ago the in France um, I have it here. I mean, four years ago, this would have been a conspiracy theory. Technically, we would have been saying this and called conspiracy theories for saying this. But um, someone who's running to be president in France this year, uh, a lefty, Emmanuel Macron, um, Trump's victory, he says, signifies that the U.S. will no longer be in a position to co-organize globalization and be the world's policeman with the European Union. Hmm. He just acknowledged that that has been has been the status quo until now, that the U.S. and the EU, Europe, form an Atlantis' citadel that rules the world and polices it. That was conspiracy theory slash extreme lefty talk. You know, radicals only said those things before. Mm -hmm. And now this is officially in the discourse because of these upsetting events, which are upsetting the the apple cart of what actually has been the real status quo all all this time. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, that's because... Um, you know, you're a conspiracy theorist in, in, in kind of times when the majority of the people in, you know, in the, in the dominant, uh, sphere of influence under which you live or whatever, uh, where the authorities in those countries or on that area of the globe, whatever, are seen as being, uh, legitimate authorities, you know, uh, because that's effectively what, uh, if you think about a lot of conspiracy theorists, uh, how the essence of conspiracy theory as, as we understand today is, the idea of uh, exposing uh, double dealing or duplicity or lies or manipulations by an established authority that claims to be just legitimate authority, but you're saying it's basically illegitimate because it, it's got a, a different agenda behind the scenes from what it uh, publicly exposes. But now that uh, uh, for a lot of people in, in the West, a uh, president of the of the free world basically has, has arrived who's effectively, as far as they're concerned, illegitimate, well, then you're going to see all sorts of conspiracy theories. The stuff that we've been talking about, about the other, every president and every, uh, you know, um, a lot of presidents in different countries over the past 10 or 15 years, you, you see that uh, people who would have uh, laughed at those or called you conspiracy theories pre- previously now are basically saying the same thing because they're effectively on the same page as you, at least in the sense of uh, seeing the authority, the established authorities as illegitimate. If they're illegitimate, well, then you, you, you're free to kind of accuse them of all sorts of uh, things. And you see the way people are accusing Trump of all sorts of different things, you know, uh, many of them um, falling in the category of conspiracy theory, you know. So it just, it, I mean, it's, it's a bit depressing yeah, to think that people, that it takes this for people. I mean, 
it takes this for Trump to come along for people to actually just, you know, recognize reality, the reality of, of human nature, which is from our perspective is what our conspiracy theorizing has been grounded in. It's like, mm-hmm. don't be such a child. You know what I mean? No, but our, our government just doing the best thing it can for all the people around the world. You're not even allowed, allowing for basic human nature, you know? has been our argument about conspiracy theories and the, the validity of conspiracy theories and that, that they shouldn't really be called conspiracy theories. They're just, uh, it's just pointing out realities of human nature and ascribing them to pe- people in positions of power, which apparently you're not allowed to do because if you do it, you're a conspiracy theorist. So for example, an ordinary person in the street would allow that his neighbor might be a, a double-dealing backstabber who would be setting him up or trying to frame him for something he didn't do. Right? No problem. Everybody can accept that. I know somebody in the road who did that, from, did that you know, 10 years ago to me or did that to a neighbor, but that the goal, that's, that's human nature, right? You recognize it as human nature. But for me or us to come along then and say, well, shouldn't the same apply to President so-and-so? No, that's a conspiracy theory. Or the CIA? No, the CIA would never do that, you know, because they're an authority. Apparently authorities do not have or are not uh, subject to normal uh, human nature mm-hmm. that you see you know, on a, on a regular basis, or is part of the spectrum of human nature. You're not allowed to ascribe that to uh, people in authority. Everybody would freak out and say, "Leave my authority alone." But now, the, the authority in America is seen by X number of people, decent percentage of the population, particularly in the West, and they're being whipped up by the media to see it in this way. See, see him as illegitimate. Uh, therefore, he's the he's the lowest of the low. He's just like you or me. Therefore. We can ascribe to him all of the things that we ascribe to ordinary human beings, right? Uh, lying, deceitful, doing one thing, saying one thing and doing another, all that kind of stuff, you know? Well, I mean, I don't think that any of the things you said are untrue. Like, I think good. They're, they're, they're fine. <laughs> I think it's a bad perspective. I think it's a good one. Um, and I look at it like this. Because it's mine. It's kind of like a high school. It's like a high school. And... The people in the world are each students of different socioeconomic classes or whatever it is. Mm-hmm. And you've got the popular kids and the cool kind of ruling everything. And they're kind of the, the you know, mm-hmm. one of them's a football star. So they look the other way when he gets drunk or when they're doing weird stuff. And, you know, I, I mean, it's everything that you see like in, in a modern high school is basically going on on the world stage, right? All of these leaders are basically kind of like, the winners of popularity contests in their own country, right? Uh, which is itself kind of like a giant high school as well. And yeah. then they go on to this world stage and it's kind of the same thing. So, I mean, like America is kind of like the football jock, right? Not necessarily the smartest, not the worst, not the best, whatever it is. And they're basically sort of running around And most of the, the European countries like the, uh, England and France and Germany and, you know, a few other places, those are kind of like his, you know, lieutenants that he walks around with, and they sit at the cool cable. And you know, of course, it's the poor kids over there, and mm. it's like you know, sort of Africa. And then there's the ones that are kind of like in the middle class over here, and then there's the geeks and the nerds, and that's you know, China or whatever it is. You know, so you have all this stuff going on. And so, mm. I mean, when you have those things, you end up getting a consensus, but not like a real consensus where it's like everyone has an equal vote. Nobody has an equal vote. Of course, obviously, you know, the biggest, richest, strongest, the one who's the, the most willing to punch people in the face, obviously is going to be able to throw their weight around quite a bit. And so you're going to get a, a group of people who kind of glom around that person, and it's going to look like, oh, my God, we're ruled by one rule of government. Hmm. So it's not so – it's, it's normal human behavior. Right, what right? you're saying, what you're saying uh, 
it is actually uh, part of kind of contrary in a certain sense to what I was saying. It is the way people re- respond to authority by not ascribing to them normal human uh, reactions well, is, is in behavior. Absolutely, uh, people see that, like you just said, jocks in schools who are looked up to and are given a free pass. So to right. a certain extent. Uh, and I give them a free pass because they're seen as valuable, more valuable in society or better or looked well, up to are, or whatever. Right. And uh, so governments are seen in that way by the people. Right. So I, I think it's kind of two things. One is people would see that a government may do, or officials, government representatives or presidents would do some bad things, but they're given a free pass because of the value they have in society. Uh, but at the same time, I think people also tend to think that those people, uh, authorities, are meant to be more honorable, better than me, basically. The right. reason they're above me, the reason they're in control of of me is because right. they're better than me. Therefore, their morality is, uh, is a higher morality and stuff. So they, I tend to overlook or, or dismiss allegations that they're immoral. Right. Right? And that's a real con job, especially in the sense that uh, if in, in the scenario or in the, in the possible reality where those people actually, far from being uh, of a... Uh, you know, representing a higher moral standard or embodying a higher moral standard than the average person, it's actually the opposite, you know, um, for, a, for a certain number of them or a lot of them, that they're actually more immoral uh, than the average person in the street, you know. Oh, and that's where no. you can kind of like a big lie kind of thing where these people can, can so. do horrible things and get away with it because nobody would believe that people would do such a thing, right? Especially an authority sometimes. that's meant to be a higher moral standard. Sometimes that happens. I think sometimes that, that is a definite thing. I think that when you're in, uh, somebody kind of, ha- I think it was Bill Burr who kind of like, kind of put it out. It's like, you have no idea what it's like to be powerful. John McCain. Well, John McCain. <laughs> <laughs> I could imagine being a, an entryous lefty. But anyway, no, but you really don't. You don't have any idea like what it's like to be wealthy and powerful and to be able to do things that normal people, it's easy to be all kind of moral when you can't do certain things. So when, when you see those people in that, that position, sometimes I'm kind of a little bit amazed that they're not worse. Doing doing worse. Yeah. Yeah. But obviously there's serious bad ones like Dick Cheney shooting Mm. people in the face. I mean, Mm. there's obviously a couple of those. Yeah. I think that if you want, if you remove all of the details of modern politics and you take it down to the tribal level and you look at it based on, you have a grouping of people and you kind of like have the hunters and the, or the warriors, whatever it is. And you need mammoth meat and you need the kind of person who's batshit crazy enough to run up on a mammoth with a rock tied to a stick. Right. Because that's what they used to do. Right. I mean, to, to hunt mammoth way back in the day when all they had was like a long stick and a sharpened rock on it. And you had to like run up, get up underneath them and get them in the heart or else you weren't going to bring them down. You need somebody who is like a special kind of person who's going to do that so that you can get your mammoth meat. So if that guy gets a little sauced up and slaps people around on Sundays, you're going to be like, well, yeah, but he'll run up on the mammoth, so we're going to overlook this. Because he's just venting his mammoth trauma. No, it's not because he's venting his mammoth trauma. It's because he's objectively more valuable than the people he slaps well, around. That's what I mean, yeah. That's, that's, it's an objective thing. It's just like, we need people to run up on this mammoth. And you know what? He's going to smack you around on Sundays. Sorry, but you don't run up on the mammoth. We need the mammoth meat. He's actually more useful. And that is a basic sort of ingrained tribalistic thing. There's certain types of people in right. the tribe who are useful for certain tasks. Right. And the chieftain can kind of get away with some stuff, but because he's going to take the responsibility, all these different things. But the, so of these, these people who are being looked up to now, that same tribal brain that says, you know, Donald Trump 
and anybody who's in like a, even if they weren't really that kind of person, because we know there's a little bit of wonkiness in the election process, but generally speaking, people look up to that person and say, he's the chief, he's the head brave, he's the soldier, he's the whatever. And they kind of have this inbuilt evolutionary hero worship type of thing specifically to keep them shutting up when that person slaps them around a bit because they're useful in certain situations. And that's just but so why are people uh, bucking that trend? There's a certain number of people bucking that trend. And why are they rejecting? I mean, well, what you're describing is basic aspects of, of human right. nature that a lot of people aren't aware of, you know? I mean, uh, for example, you know, the, the, the value system that you just described right. in society where people have more value or are seen to have uh, a certain value that's essential to it from a tribal point of view. So that's still in human beings, regardless right. of how modern the technology, right. or modern society is and technology and stuff. That's still a very, it's a, it's a ruling part of, of, of human nature that most people are unaware of. Right. And maybe it's the fact that most people are unaware of it right. is why they you have all these people now who are trying to pull those people down and, and saying that that's unjust. The guy who gets the free pass because he has more value in society shouldn't get that free pass anymore. It's injustice. It's discrimination. Right. It's marginalization of the rest of us because he gets a free pass. Harrison, are you trying to put in? Yeah, I think I've got... Go well, I, I can attempt to answer that one. Um, I think that it, it kind of goes back to the same... Um, dynamic that Jason was talking about, when you have that person who fulfills a specific social role um, and then he's given certain, um, you know, exceptions for poor behavior because of that role, the the operative point there is that he fulfills that role and that he, he fits there, he or she. So I think what we have today is that, well, in, in society in general, if a person, if you look at any kind of social hierarchy, if the person at the top of that hierarchy is, does their job, then the people at lower in the social hierarchy will be fine with it. And so, right. and they'll even make allowances for that person, you know, if they go a bit crazy. They're you know, yeah, they're in, in areas that aren't specific to the, the role that they play in their position. The problem becomes when a person gets into that position who doesn't fit. So this would be the guy that, um, you know, in the, in the tribe, chasing down a mastodon who makes a big show of himself and, you know, um, arms akimbo, pounds his chest and talks about himself as the, you know, the greatest mammoth hunter and then goes out and, you know, just, um, you know, plays, uh, plays dice or whatever with a few rocks and watches all the, you know, watches the herds go by and doesn't really do anything and then comes back and says, oh, you know, I really tried and uh, couldn't really get anything. And once people become aware of that and see that he actually isn't fulfilling his role, mm. then then the then his um, you know unscrupulous behavior in other areas that will then come to the forefront because he's not fulfilling his role. Now the reason mm. I think that we've had this situation for for several years in many Western societies is that um, we because of the the distance between regular people at the lower end of the social hierarchy and the people at the top is that there there is a great distance and that is mediated by the media so what you have is you're looking at this person it would be as if there's this uh, this hunter guy and all the tribe ever sees is this guy on TV and he's saying oh I'm such a great hunter and you know every once in a while they get some meat that comes you know brought from brought brought from some other place they don't really see that place they don't know where it comes from and this guy's you know all they see are images on their you know well anachronistic tv 
showing this guy is this, <laughs> well, as this, yeah, this great dude. <laughs> I mean, but, but, but uh, then, yeah, what, but, but then, um, it gets to the point where they're not getting the food and they're, and they, you know, they've got this vague feeling that this guy isn't who he says he is. And if, when things get bad enough that they, well, things will get bad <laughs> enough where they realize that this guy is just a fraud and that the whole system is like, well, maybe not the whole system, but large parts of the system are fraudulent. And so I think that's where we, like today we have these politicians who aren't necessarily, um, well suited to the, to their positions. They're not doing exactly what they say they're doing. And mm. once that kind of, once that comes deserve. out, then the, then the people get angry and start looking at all those, those flaws. I think that's one, per, one part of the perspective for it. Yeah. Well, there's this aspect where like in every tribe, there's always that person, you know, uh, that person who, who kind of gets pushed off onto the, the, the ice flow, you know, whether they're out hunting or some, or, or just, you know, it's kind of tolerated. But when you, when you grow the population and you keep growing it and growing it and growing it, you get more and more of those types of people. And they tend to kind of get together and they start sort of, you know, talking to each other and like, well, you know, they're just basically the fox and the grapes. They're sour about the whole hierarchical structure. And um, they end up getting, you know, a bit of power. And they're pretty clever, and they they basically kind of compete against this other ver- version of, of people, this more tribal kind of hierarchical version, and they basically want to level everything. And I guess, in a certain sense, Nietzsche kind of talks about it with with his kind of master slave morality, where he talks about like the different types of people and how they go about it. And it's just basically a battle right now to see who's going to win. You know, whether or not it's going to be the sort of the hardcore egalitarians, or it's going to be the sort of the hierarchy tribalists, you know, and that's basically what's going on with the alt-right and, and, and the left right now is the difference between uh, the meritocracy people and the socialist people. I mean, the sort of everybody's the, got merit. People. Everybody's a special snowflake or no, you know, you'll lead if you work type of thing. Yeah. Maybe we should tee Get, this up. Um, <clears throat> getting back to, to a main talk. Today's, today's warmongers speak about, humanitarianism about helping um, the other. We, we've come some way since the late 19th century when there was a scramble for Africa from Europe, um, beginning of the American imperialism in the Philippines and the uh, Spanish Empire territories in the Western Hemisphere. In those days, it was very different, very different atmosphere. Um, they, they, they didn't couch their intentions in such uh, lofty terms. No, the scientific basis was not a pejorative term. Yeah. Uh, survive the fist. Uh, academics, yeah. politicians would frankly could frankly speak and and have in the US and in Europe that that except they were saying that they were superior. Survival of the fittest, basically. Yeah. Um, not at all. Only. I don't know survival of the fittest, but maybe just to flesh that out, I mean, go back to the time of the British Empire, uh, you know, right up until its supposed demise in 1950 or so. Um, I mean, look at all the literature from back in the kind of 1700s, 1800s uh, that was put out by the British Empire to justify uh, British imperial expansion. It was basically, you know, look, these people in Africa, they're not really people. They're monkeys. They're monkeys monkeys in the trees. China man is just you know, it's like the half kind of like semi-subhuman type thing. You know, they had hierarchy. Wired and opium and stuff. They they had an explicit hierarchy. The black was 
at the lowest, right. then the Red Indian, the North Americans, and then... Um, but Indian Indians were pretty low as well. Okay. Um, I think, yes, then the yellow, the China man was, ah, okay, because yeah. they still had some recognition that China had been yeah. very civilized in the preceding era, medieval. But nobody was, nobody was, uh, nobody escaped. I mean, even like the Irish, like, you know, basically, you know, very little difference uh, ethnically or whatever from from the British themselves and the Irish were presented as kind of monkeys and apes and stuff. You know what I mean? I mean, you don't, have to, you don't have to be black to be presented as a monkey. Yeah, it wasn't by, strictly, by right? Yeah. But yeah. the thing is, our point here is that people back then and right up until, you know, 50, 60, 70 years ago, well, they had no problem. Yeah, they had no problem pitching these people, these others that they would nominate and colonize to the people back home as basically subhuman. And therefore, why worry about it? Let's just go and give them and steal their stuff. They'd, they wouldn't know what to do with it anyway. But Jesus, we're bringing them civilization. They're a bunch of, they're a bunch of Neanderthals, basically. You know? And people accepted that. But there was a, a change, like you said, yeah. just after the Second World War. It seems that for some reason they started to have to present their 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 kind of imperial expansion and, and, and kind of gathering of, of the resources of the globe as much as possible to themselves had to be done in a way that apparently matched with maybe a change in... Uh, cultural uh, awareness and understanding or social awareness and understanding in the West among ordinary people were there this idea of social justice and that other people are not these, you know, barbaric, uh, you know, Neanderthal types that they, they have rights as well and stuff. So the, the kind of the powers that be in the West changed their tune and started to talk about, and we see this most, uh, very specifically in, in the last, you know, 20, 30 years, in terms of American and European uh, excursions, let's say, uh, into other countries, that they were all pitched in the, in the context of humanitarianism. I mean, what they did didn't change. Just look at Iraq. I mean, you just go in, you destroy the place, and you teach your troops. The troops come in there thinking about these people as uh, desert uh, desert monkeys or desert sand niggers, sand niggers, that kind of thing. Uh, so that hasn't changed at the, at the human level, but the narrative for the public to justify it radically changed to, to apparently to reflect a change in the perception uh, amongst people back home of and you can say that's a good thing, you can say that's evolution, right? People start seeing mm. ordinary pe- other people in other countries as as subhuman. Well, they start to see them as it was progress. As as, it's progress, <laughs> but it was it was just it was that in itself was used as a cover to continue uh, the the kind of imperial wars or aggression because they said, well no longer are we going into this country just to uh, civilize these 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 monkeys. Basically, uh, now we're going to free them because they deserve the rights that we have. We're going to free them from the evil bad man who's ruling over them. That was the narrative. I think yeah. I, I mean, the problem is you keep collapsing entities and expanding them, right? So the problem is is that throughout that period of history, there was a sort of a, a liberal intellectual movement. A progressivist kind of movement and a scientific movement that was basically underpinning the racism, you know, the science racism, essentially, the, the theory of races. And this was the stuff ultimately fed into Hitler. The thing is, Hitler was, he wasn't specifically a atheist in the modern sense, but he was more or less an atheist, you know. And he was basing everything that he thought on the science of the day, or the science of a few, you know, days back. The, ones that the, the the reports that he wanted and he believed, which were ones that basically said the white race was the best race and uh, that, that everybody else was, was basically, you know, subhuman. 
And he kind of liked that, obviously, fed into his sort of thing. But throughout American history, throughout the world history, there's also been people who are like, hold on a second, this isn't cool. Right. You shouldn't do that. And those things right. were, were, were like, uh, what is the, the guy's name? Something Tomasino was a famous Jesuit priest who gave the by what right uh-huh. do you right. uh, people enslaved. I mean, the, right. those was, people and, existed. And there was a Protestant movement as well, which basically was like, no, uh, re- slavery is bad. All of this stuff is bad. Racism is bad. We shouldn't be doing that. Right. So but, it's, you can't collapse the identity and say, like, well, there were these threads going through but, the well, West no, saying, but, don't do that. Right. There were those threads, but the difference that we're saying now is that it's much broader and it's like it, large segments of the population are consumed yeah. by this idea that everybody should have equal rights. Everybody, we're all born equal and there, there are no people lesser than you. And, 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 uh, and also the, the argument that it's much stronger today or has expanded much more today is, is the change in the narrative by the established authorities. Because back when there were a few hundred years ago, when there were these people arguing against uh, racism and slavery and stuff, uh, the, the, the powers in that, like in, in, the, in, in Britain, Great Britain, in the UK, for example, they didn't really seek to, uh, change their narrative or, or, or change the way they thought about it as a result of that. They didn't see that as some kind of serious social pressure. They kept putting out Punch Magazine. In fact, they probably just redoubled the number, the editions of Punch Magazine showing Africans as monkeys. And that's the way you combated this argument that, you know, so today, sure, throughout history, you can probably go back 10,000 years and find someone uh, amongst uh, the cavemen or something like that, you know, um, arguing about or something like that, a few people, but it seems that, I mean, maybe we're wrong, but it seems that in the past, say, 30 or 40 years, that that idea, that concept has kind of exploded, mm-hmm. has changed, there has been a sea change, I mean, from uh, 100 years ago, when the average person in the street had no problem accepting that an African was like a monkey in a tree, today, it doesn't fly, for most people. I think that that it wasn't as widespread as as people think that it is. I think that it was largely a, a an elite kind of idea and philosophy and an intellectual kind of philosophy. I don't really knew much about the African world. I mean, you know, most right. of these people lived that, in. That's, that's the point. That's the key thing. Technology. They didn't know much, and now here we are today, where right. we all know a lot more about each other. Right. You know. So, so now, yeah, there's, there's, but there's, there's this next thing that happened, which was the, the first and the second world war. And the first and the second world war did some interesting things. And mainly is it killed off kind of our best and our brightest. Right. And this was kind of our best and our brightest in the sense of the, the brave people, mm. you know, the strong people, because they're the ones who are more, most socially responsible. I've got to go defend my country. And that's a good thing for a person to feel. Whether or not they were manipulated right. into it is outside of it. Right. The, the people the who intent. volunteered, the, the intent was good. As it killed off those people and it left the population basically pretty much with a bunch of cowards, pretty much. I mean, largely, and they and they basically bred quite a bit. Um, <laughs> that's basically what happened. Is they, well, they, right they repopulated the the West with well, with cowards, pretty much. Well, I, I mean, I don't know if that's, that's where we get millennials. <laughs> no. I don't know if that's true or not, but it's interesting that after the Second World War was when they. Uh, the National Health Service uh, was established in the UK, for example, that that, that really uh, you know significantly increased the birth rate, right. and uh, you know right afterwards and right after the Second World War, yeah, you probably had a change in the gene pool, and the people who were producing right after the Second World War for that uh, the next generation were, you know, 
uh, maybe did have a certain, um, uh, there were certain genes that, that were lacking, let's say, you know, there were particular genes that were promoted at that time, you know. I don't know if that's a, an argument we could actually make, but um, without doing some genetic studies uh, that didn't exist at the time. So, well, I mean, I mean, the West kind of lost the spirit that had brought it to dominance to a certain extent. Mm. To a certain extent. But what it came out of that with was, of course, you know, a lot of science and a lot of military hardware and a lot of people who were, you know, I mean, it's, it's complicated. The problem is, is you can't just find one single thing. I mean, yeah. you kind of have to understand that 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 uh, the rise of the of the com, uh, of Soviet Russia was an incredibly important thing for why America is the way it is now. And if you don't kind of understand that, you know, within probably like less than a decade, communism had gone from 180 million people to 800 million people and you know people in the west kind of saw the number and they just said well that's quite a bit of growth and here the here you had these sort of you know stalin and and various people sort of talking about the world revolution and the destruction of capitalism and they said well we're not going to have that and so they basically fought this gigantic ideological war between the west and 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 soviet communism and and we won and that largeness, the spread of our ideology, of the American ideology, was intended to be, rightly or wrongly, doesn't really matter, to counter the spread of the socialist communist ideology. I happen to agree with that, but I'm a dirty American. So Here, Here's the thing, though. Um, in the context of, of the way we're framing this, you know, over a century and more, um, if you look at that in isolation, what you said is true. And there must be more to it, though, because here we are again 40-some years later, and <clears throat> the same basic pattern is afoot, except now there's no longer Western capitalism versus Soviet communism. There's no grounds to have the same ideological battle, in quotes, between Russia and the West, and between China. Well, China, maybe. It's still nominally communist, but... but um, so. so what I'm saying is that the narrative of the time was correct, as you've described it, and now here we are. But the, the underlying reality is essentially the same, but there must be a new narrative for it. Mm. You see? So well, how can we account for both? You know? Well, I mean, there is well, this problem that as America was growing and fighting communism, there was pretty much an entryist movement inside the United States that pretty much took over. I mean, America is not a capitalist country. It's a fascist country. It's fascism. I mean, it's a, almost a, it's, it's got a lot of backdoor fascism with this regulatory system, but basically the American government is a fascist government, purely and simple, which is national socialism in a totalitarian state. It's just not quite as overt. It's not quite as Nazi-esque, but it is largely a fascist government. But it'll get there under Trump. Maybe, maybe not. Who knows? I mean, it depends on which way he goes. He's got the power. I mean, people don't realize how much power the American state has accrued. Hmm. Uh, it doesn't always exercise it today, right? But it has on the books the, all the laws necessary to basically make it a complete fascist dictatorship at any moment. Hmm. In fact, Trump is kind of exploiting that with his executive orders and that his ability to do that. It's kind of actually, it's completely insane from an American perspective that the president is able to be so broad with his executive orders. I mean, all of this stuff is supposed to be going through Congress and the Senate, mm. but over the years, the American government and the presidency has accrued power through Clinton, through Bush, who uh, is a dirty neocon, um, and uh, through Obama, 
has basically made what is going on now completely possible because, I mean, Obama did the same kind of crap with his executive orders left and right. Mm. And I mean, Congress uh, the, uh, was just up in arms over, over his exec- executive orders. So, I mean, this is just kind of, God, it's so complicated. It's not, yeah. it's not just this simple narrative that you can just say, boom, there it is. It's something mm. is what it seems. Well, well, uh, just like what, what Neil was saying that, um, just looking at the, in at the broad kind of strokes of of the of the twentieth century and up until today, um, you had Neil called it a narrative. You know, uh, specifically referring to uh, the Cold War, right? And it's largely been based on a narrative, right. a narrative that was fed to the people, like uh, uh, communism and the ideological the ideological battle between right. East and West and capitalism versus communism and stuff, um, and how then that as soon as Russia uh, the Soviet Union fell. Pretty much within a couple of years, they had established a new narrative that allowed them to continue the same policies. Uh, and we're fairly sure, if we can't be sure about the communism thing, the Cold War, that's just a narrative, we can be fairly sure that the new narrative, which was Islamic terrorism, is a narrative uh, because they came up with it immediately and, uh, and, and encouraged it and helped it to kind of actually germinate and, and spread and did a lot to actually create the reality that they said existed, you know? Um, and if you look, I mean, obviously narratives dominate, bullshit narratives dominate in, in when Western political uh, 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 policy making and what they present to the public. Like, I mean, we were talking earlier on about the, uh, there's a good video of Putin actually laughing in the face of a reporter when he says, and the reporter said, yeah, but the reason we're putting, uh, the reason NATO is putting missiles in Eastern Europe, um, more or less on Russia's border, is because of the threat from Iranian Iranian nukes, from Iran, the threat, threat from Iran. And Putin just laughed in his face and said, you know, at least uh, it's getting late, but at least you give me a good laugh before I go to bed, you know. Uh, and, and of course, that's what it is. It's like they talked about Iran. and You can cite Colin Powell's email, that was released by WikiLeaks to to somebody. I can't remember who he, who he sent it to. I think it was maybe Victoria Newland or someone was it. No, anyway. to, it was for, the former British. Um, oh, it was a British astro. Yeah. That's right. Yeah, saying uh, when they were talking about Iran's nuke nukes, uh, Powell basically said, "Well, everybody knows they've only got one." And he said, "What are they going to do? Polish it? What are they going to do with one nuke? Polish it? I mean, it's ridiculous, you know." So the idea of Iran being a threat was just a ruse and narrative to justify uh, the real uh, agenda, which was to combat, confront, push back, thwart, whatever, Russia, because yeah. of the threat to Russia. And the same, exact same thing is happening uh, in, with China. They're doing, using exactly the same policy. Yeah. And in place of uh, Iran, in Asia, you have North Korea. North Korea is this kind of caricature of a state kind of thing. And, and with, with the, the leaders of North Korea, these kind of like cartoon bodies, basically. Right. And the reason that, that the U.S. has South Korea bristling with freaking uh, uh, missiles all pointed at North Korea, which borders China, is because of North Korea. It's because of, like, I'm so Wong Lee, uh, Kim Jong-il, uh, that guy, right? Not China, who's... Well, right. the missiles happen to be pointed right. at China, but right. you have to understand it's North Korea, this tiny little country that we are so worried about. Right. And it's like, so... but. You have to understand that's the freaking narrative that the media repeats over and over and over again. And this bullshit doofus BBC <sighs> reporter even right. had the idiocy right. to actually say it to Putin to his face, like in all seriousness. But those NATO missiles, they're for Iran. Right. 
And people just laughed at him as if to say, dude, what planet do you live on? Right. You're a reporter, yet at the very least you should be have a little bit of insight well, as to what goes on behind the scenes, what this ruse is actually about. Everybody should be able to see it. Let me ask you something. What does the concept of exporting American democracy smell like? Well, it smells like... Close your com- eyes and take a whiff at exporting the world revolution. Communism. <sighs> because... Freaking fascists. Yeah. They are communists. Communist communist international. Well, yeah, I mean, they're basically... They want a revolution they're in every basically country. Try, they want a revolution in every country. They use revolutions, color revolutions, they call them. But that was Trotsky. Instead, instilling the American way of life. It, it was it, in the 1950s and 60s, there was a, a very significant fascist takeover of the United States. And, it, and the reason, one of the reasons why the left and the right were able to get behind the hatred of communism was because the lefty guys hate communism because they're dirty fascists. And the only thing that communists hate more than capitalists is fascists. Mm-hmm. They hated each other. So that's, that's my thing. My thing is the exportation, because it's not an American ideal to export democracy. I mean, all of the founding right. documents of the U.S. say we should not be in any kind of entangling treaties. We should not be going around the world and being a policeman. Right. It is not our job to send the army over to other countries. We shouldn't be invading people, fighting. We shouldn't be getting in wars. Right. That's not our job. We should not be doing it. That has nothing to do with America. That is a bizarro, weird-ass, leftist idea that they need to make the world free. Right. Or whatever it is that they're exporting, which is it's, it's a fascist corporatocracy, is essentially what they're exporting into the world. Well, it's like we've been saying that the idea that is that it, is that they're exporting freedom and democracy is the same as really as exporting uh, social justice. Well, yeah, that's essentially what it's, it's global justice. They're all part of. They're not all in on it together, but they're all part of the same kind of philosophy, which is that we Using have our- the right to go into other places and tell people how to live and how to be, and we can go over there and infest them with whatever it is that we have been infected with as well. And that's what all people who are who are infected by a disease, they feel this compulsion to do that because the disease is controlling them. I mean, the, the left and the liberals and the, all of these different people, they're, they're loosely connected by this idea that, that they need to make the world whatever it is that their utopianist crackhead vision is. And it changes over time. It goes a little this way and it goes a little that way because they're all a bunch of starry headed hipsters looking for the dynamo of the sky. You know, these Ginsburg loving, you know, sort of, uh, campus radical type individuals. That's where they got their indoctrination. And now this is essentially what we have. And, and, Putin uses the narrative of Islamic terror to work his political magic. And the thing is, is Trump is using it as well. He's doing a lot of very interesting things. His whole thing is using the narrative because he wants to extra, hopefully he's going to do that. Whether or not he's going to be able to, because, you know, obviously there's a lot of entrenched political power in Washington, D.C., that is making an incredible crap ton of money in the sort of the military industrial complex loves this whole exporting democracy because it turns out the best way to export it is to shoot people in the head and they're making the bullets. Right. You know, sorry, that was my rant. No, good. That's good. There's, there's, there are many ironies in this, but something that struck me is that um, the overwhelming mantra they have is, is progress. Onwards we go to the, the glorious future. And, well, we've already got there, and now we must raise up all the other fuzzy wuzzies and progress them because they're inherently <laughs> incapable of it themselves. But the delicious, the delicious irony is in it is that 
it's not delicious. What am I saying? It, it's actually, it's horrible because it's, it's the primary retarding factor in why all these other countries have not been able to pull themselves up by the bootstraps and quotes till now. Right. Yeah. The, the, these guys are the most regressive factor on earth, not the most progressive. Yes, of course. Progressive. Yeah, but I mean, you talk about uh, exporting democracy around the world. That's just the same. I mean, Trotsky wanted a revolution and a right. continuous revolution in every country. So it was basically just... Uh, it was basically just uh, the same ideology, and, and you can give it a, a different name, basically. But your goal is controlling, having, control. having influence over as much of the planet as possible. And you can use whatever ideology you want. You can be a freedom and democracy. You can be communism. You can be collective, collectivization and, you know, the commonality of all people and everybody, you know, only earning by, by you know... Uh, uh, what was the phrase to every person? To each according to his need, from each according to his ability. Exactly. You can you can throw these ideologies at people to bamboozle them and get them worked up about it. But the goal, is, the point is that they're being promoted. These are being promoted by a central authority with all the weapons that will will um, will will will, fas- will uh, implement the, the the spread of this ideology, and that's just a cover for them basically making money from them expanding their own influence and control, which equals wealth and power for them. So. Um, Look, Jesus said it best, by their fruits, ye shall know them. What did communism promise? Freedom and power for the worker. What did it deliver? Gulags, slave labor, forced labor camps, starvation. That's what it delivered. Mm-hmm. All right. It, forget everything that it said. It, they talk such a good game, but they hide their evil in this talk about rights and entitlements and taking care of people and crying over the children. And whenever they want to get something done, they march some widow, some poor tortured soul, some poor little dreamer child. They march them in front of their, their policy to get it in. And all these people who are very sort of emotional react to that and say, Oh, but it's just for the children. It's all these refugees and all this different stuff, but they have seriously weird agendas going on here. And what they are trying to do is multifaceted, unfortunately. <laughs> so you can't just simply sum it up in one point, but it no. is exporting the world, the world revolution. Yeah. Uh, the, the, the sort of crypto dem- democratic one, you know, the democratic socialist one, you know. Harrison, are you holding your tongue for anything there? No. I just wanted to backtrack a bit to this idea. Well, a couple of the ideas, one yeah, being okay. that uh, the U.S. is this, uh, well, really is fascist and that the and the dichotomy between the anti-communism as um let's say with good intentions and as a narrative and if you go back to right after the first world war with alan dulles in the cia you can see this pretty much epitomized how alan dulles's dealings with the nazis and with the communists basically alan dulles was a nazi he had no problem with the nazis he loved them um, if anything, his anti-communism was more in the realm of both um, like economic systems and power games. So Alan Dulles really had nothing against um, totalitarianism or what we would just call like just horrible, um, you know, evil government. That He was fine with that as long as it was, you know, him and not the communists. And so very early on from the very beginning in the intelligence agencies, you had this um, this kind of double dealing where they were fine to use the to use anti-communism and to hold it up as this high ideal 
while at the same time, if you look at what they were actually doing for all these years, like just look at the Phoenix program, like we talked with, uh, talked about with Douglas Valentine, what they were actually doing in the Phoenix program, which was essentially um, a miniaturized version of of like the Gulag, where they just round up all these people, create this this um, intelligence network that would just it was just a a factory for torture and for for killing people and it didn't matter if they were communists or not it was just about numbers it was the same thing in in the in the soviet union and so that's that was kind of the 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 what i see as the initial kind of corruption of anti-communism how it it wasn't really founded on anything that was really inherently evil about communism it became this kind of mask for just another agenda and then we see the same thing like what with what Jason's saying when you strip all this down it's this it's the this same kind of world revolution idea and that's what we and that's basically you know what we've been living with for so long and so now we've gotten to the point where someone like Trump comes along and we have all these different complex threads that have led to this situation right now to the point where like he said it de- it really depends on what he does because he d- he does have all this power and it has been it has been given to him through not only the last 15 years where we've had increasingly um like overt totalitarian measures come in with the the laws and some of the practices like uh suspension of due process and these um you know signing statements and executive orders and um this overt reliance on empire and subjugating other nations then you but it goes back you know all the way not only to after world war one or world war two but even back to the late 1800s like jason was saying so you have this situation where now you have this figure this new president who has all of these executive powers that are essentially like we're we're never intended to be american you know american in nature and yet um he is saying things like, we're, well, we're going to stop this imperial escapade. We're going to stop this world revolution um, mentality and focus and, you know, get back to this mm. kind of Westphalian system of sovereign nations dealing with each other as sovereign nations. So we're just in this really strange time where all of these streams kind of meet. And it's like now it's scary because because. It really just—it's like the flip of a, a of a quarter. We don't know which um, you know which face it's going to land on, and um, but nothing's certain. So it's like we, you can't bet on Trump being the next next Hitler. It's not it's not just a you know um, a given that that's or a necessity that that's what's going to happen. But um, but at the same time, you don't want like I think that's a lot of the the hesit, um, hesitance or. Um, reticence coming f- that you see in a lot of people like in the alt media who are like kind of like they they're they like certain things that he's doing but they're totally repelled by other things and they're not really certain because they don't want to bet that he's going to be a perfect president because there's that possibility that things could just go south right but there's this this thing that getting back to the progressivist thing because you kind of it, to understand trump and what's going on you really do have to understand your you know sort of intellectual progressivism that that really came about in in the 60s. And it's interesting that you mentioned Dulles because who did uh, the American government import into largely academia uh, after the end of the Second World War? Well, it was Nazi scientists, Nazi psychologists, Nazi psychiatrists who then went into, uh, were basically given academic posts and were 
basically held court and, you know, Columbia University and, and various different universities. And they developed, along with the Frankfurt School, this idea of cultural Marxism, this idea of readjusting the, the failure of Marxism was because it was too organized around economics and they decided to organize it around culture. And the, in order to liberate culture, they had to have this complete uh, deconstruction of, of cultural and national identities. And it, this was basically the start of the cultural aspect of the one world government, one world nation, um, basically a complete destruction of any kind of cultural identity. So if you don't understand a little bit about that stuff and what they were talking about, this is where come, this is where the social justice warriors come from. They come out of critical theory and, and Marcuse and Frankfurt's the Frankfurt school. And what was his name? Eric Fromm, I think. And who was the other guy? Derrida. Uh, and et cetera and so forth. So those people who basically came to prominence in the 60s, I mean, when Marcuse went to, to Paris in, in, in the 60s, they had three M's written up on the signs of everybody cheering when he was there. And it was, it was um, Mao, Marcuse, and Marx, uh, because they really considered him kind of like the equal. He was the reinterpreter of, of Marxist philosophy into critical theory, which then became the underpinnings of the feminist movement and the social justice movement and the, the campus radicals and... Uh, of the 1960s, who then fed into like those people, uh, they got in a war in the 70s and the early 80s. That's why Joe's talking about this kind of TV show at one point where they were making fun of those guys. There was actually a war. Camille Paglia talks about it. There was a war with these people in the 1970s and 1980s. And the, the old style second wave feminists, they won the argument, but all of the campus radicals who had, you know, sort of cut their teeth in the, the marches and protests of the sixties, they went back and got the assistant professorships and then became tenured professors and then started in the, the nineties to basically create this program of the, of the social, of the, the college level social justice. And it spilled out from there. So all of the stuff that we're seeing now has spilled out. These are the, the millennials who have graduated from classes taught by these, 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 these basically Marxists or Marcusists, cultural Marxists. And uh, this is what Jordan B. Peterson's talking about, about how the state has financed the, the indoctrination of millions of, of radical lefties. And that's where they got indoctrinated. And that's the, the ideology that they were basically sold. I mean, same thing with Obama. He was he was a student in the sixties of those types of individuals, and he was a uh, community organizer in Chicago. And if you read my article on Spot, you'll see that Chicago is an interesting place with some being socialist Gail Sincata and and um, the Community Reinvestment Act and all these different people. And then they, they connect into the nineteen nineties with the Clintons, who who basically supported those kind of ideologies, those sort of race baiting. Uh, social justice ideologies because it was a cover for their pay-to-play politics in the 1990s to basically have the LA riots and this, the may, making a big deal out of, out of out of all these different problems that that happened in the 1990s. So I mean, it's it's really complicated, unfortunately. Yeah. Can we move on to God Emperor Trump? God Emperor Trump. Well, that's what I was going to say. I wanted to just want, uh, ask about. Uh, we talked there about the idea that. Uh, a lot of problems have been created over the past X number of years, relatively recently, re- relatively recently, by this idea of the American kind of uh, humanitarian right to protect, going around the world, spreading freedom and democracy, overthrowing bad guys, but which is really just a ruse for um, 
you know, expanding American influence around the world and making money, large, large amount of money. And for, for, for maintaining 19th century gunboat diplomacy. Right, pretty much, and making money, basically, ultimately, is what it's about. So uh, Trump comes along and he says, okay, we're going to stop all that. Now, obviously, he's going to run into problems with certain people who like money. Who'd say, well, we're going to have as much money. Maybe people. Yeah, unfortunately, they've got a bad connection over there today. Okay, why do you think the Muslim ban didn't include Afghanistan? Okay, this is really this is really interesting. I wanted to talk about this if we got a chance today. The whole idea of this Muslim ban is really interesting because, first of all, if you read the executive order that the White House put out and that Donald Trump signed, the only country mentioned in it is Syria. Now, of course, all the, major, all the mainstream media lists seven countries, Syria, Iraq, Iran, Sudan, Somalia, Yemen. I can't remember the seventh one off the top of my head. <clears throat> but, so why are they mentioning all these countries when Syria is the only one mentioned? Well, there's a clause in the executive order that refers to an existing essentially an existing Muslim ban that Obama put through. And so this one has been on the books for years. Um, I, I believe it, the, the latest you know version of it was 2015. I'd have to double check. Um, uh, I don't have the, the exact documents in front of me. But essentially, Obama introduced these pretty similar policies. It was, I mean, it was, you could call it a type of extreme vetting. Um, and yet no one was talking about it at the time, but it was for these seven countries. And so now Trump does this executive order referencing only Syria, but also this existing legislation that Obama put through, and it's these seven countries. Obama's really the one that was responsible for these seven countries being on the list. And coincidentally, these seven countries are the same seven countries that were talked about after 9-11 as being the, the countries that the U.S. is going, going to go after. So these seven countries were the ones targeted for regime change by the Bush and Obama neocon, neolib um, cabal for like total destruction. Now, so what do you have in all those countries? You have the, the rise of these terrorist groups like ISIS and their affiliates and Al, and Al Qaeda and their affiliates. So essentially the Obama and uh, and Bush have and, well not them but the the people behind them this the the neocons and the people responsible for these foreign policy decisions have essentially created disasters in all of these countries and so Trump comes along and just does the natural extension of what they started and everyone talks about it as if it just came up out of thin air when it's been there the whole time and these countries have <laughs> have been um you know, targeted for for this entire time. Now, the, the other things that they're calling it a Muslim ban, well, it's not a Muslim ban. It is a, a ban, on, a temporary ban on refugees from these from these seven countries. And well, it might be a bit more um, extensive than that. Um, it sounds I'd have to to read all the you know I haven't read all the articles yet, but I'll have to read all of them to see exactly what's going on. I know now now we're having this this huge controversy because. Um, it sounds like anyone from these countries is being denied entry into the United States. So this really does have the the, the potential to go either, to go in any direction. Um, I'll get to something uh, a possible explanation for this in a minute. But um, the point to the point right now is that it's not a Muslim ban in the sense that if you if you are a Muslim in any other country, you're not going to be banned from coming to the United States. 
And like um, one of our chatters has pointed out, why isn't Afghanistan on the list? So there are several countries that aren't on the list, Afghanistan, Qatar, Saudi Arabia, um, you know, United Arab Emirates, Emirates, um, Jordan, Egypt. So all these are Muslim countries. Um, these people will be allowed to come in. So really what it looks like to me, at least at this point, is that this was both a continuation of Obama's policies and that with the newfound or, or the new, just new um, kind of Trump-ism, which is what he basically promised or, you know, a version of what he promised in his campaign. He's one of the things he's doing is trying to to put through um, or at least follow through on as many of the promises that he made as possible. And really it's, you know, it didn't come out of nowhere because he's, A, he's doing exactly what he said he, he was going to do, and B, this is just a continuation of what's been going on. And um, But a continuation in a slightly different direction because, of course, you know, Obama wouldn't do anything this overt and he certainly wouldn't, um, you know, have a personal chat with President, you know, Putin of Russia to come up with a plan to defeat ISIS. Now, Trump was asked about this, um, I, I think it might have been, it might have been in the Sean Hannity interview with, uh, with Trump from a couple days ago. Um, can't remember for sure, but he was asked, I believe, I'll have to find the source for it, but I'm pretty sure he was asked, oh, or, or it was just pointed out, well, Saudi Arabia isn't on this, on this list. And he basically, he gave kind of this, you know, a typical, well, not typical, but he gave a, a, a politician kind of response, kind of evading the question. But the way he answered it, he said, okay, yeah, we're not, we, we're not, we don't have a ban on these countries, but um, I'm not going to name any names, but I know we know that certain countries have been, you know, funding, um, funding extremists, you know, terrorist groups, and we're very aware of it, and we'll just have to see what happens in the future. So, it's not like um, it's not like he's completely unaware of it. it well, it's just one of those things where we have to see what happens. And earlier, I just said that this can go in either direction. Well. If you've been reading Sot, you've probably seen um, a few articles that we've put up over the past several months um, from Scott Adams. He's the Dilbert guy. And his thing recently has been interpreting and predicting um, American politics and Trump using what he calls the persuasion filter. And this is the idea that um, Trump is a, a master persuader and, you know, all the kind of rules of persuasion and how persuasion influence and that kind of thing. And I'm going to find just a little paragraph from his uh, most recent blog post, which I thought was pretty interesting. So um, with regard to this so-called Muslim ban, he says, well, let me just start anywhere. What does a President Trump do when he, was in a, when he is in an impossible situation? And that impossible situation is... Um, Adams says, you know, the, that he's pretty much negotiating or persuading two opposing camps. On the one hand, you have the, the hard, far right, uh, right-wing people who want extreme, ex, you know, an extreme, extreme measure taken in regard to um, immigration. And then, of course, you have the, the leftists who want, um, you know, the opposite extreme. And so Adams says, according to the Hitler filter, um, he, Trump, does more Hitler stuff, such as being more extreme than anyone expected with his recent immigration de declarations. That filter act act 
that filter accurately predicted that he would be worse once elected. Sure enough, his temporary immigration ban is more extreme than most people expected. If things never got worse from this point on, we would have good we would have we would have to question the Hitler the Hitler filter that is if things got worse from this point on. But if things get worse still, the Hitler filter is looking good. Now compare this to the persuasion filter. This filter says Trump always opens with an extreme first offer so he has room to negotiate to the middle. The temporary ban fits that model perfectly. On the immigration topic alone, both the Hitler filter and the persuasion filter predict predict that we get to exactly the same to exactly the point we are at today. Let's call that a tie in terms of predictive power. The hard part is determining what happens next. The persuasion filter says that Trump is negotiating with his critics on the extreme right at the same time as he is negotiating with his critics on the left. He needed one opening offer that would set up both sides for the next level of persuasion, and he found it. You just saw it. The left sees Trump's executive orders on immigration as pure Hitler behavior. That gives him plenty of room to negotiate to the middle. The initial orders are too broad and clearly target too many of the wrong people. As he fixes those special cases, he will be moving away from the Hitler model. Uh, oh, I see the guys are back, but let me just finish this. So he'll be moving away We're from We're back. Go ahead. Just give, give me one sec. I'm, I'm reading something from Scott Adams. So he'll move away from the Hitler model toward the middle. And people are more influenced by the direction of things than the absolute position of things. As long as he is moving away from the Hitler analogy, people will chill out, even when, even if they think he was too close to that position before. Direction matters. Trump's, uh, Trump's temporary immigration ban set a, me a mental anchor in your brain that is frankly shocking. It will make his eventual permanent immigration plan, extreme vetting, look tame by comparison. The, perf the persuasion filter says that's his strategy, because that's always his strategy. He acts the same way every time. He wrote a book about it. He talks about it publicly. Then he does it right in front of us, over and over, and no matter how many times he does it, half the country still thinks the opening offer is the real one. Um, so I'll just stop there. You can go to Scott Adams' blog to read the rest. But essentially what he's saying is that Trump's doing the same thing that he's always been doing, which is pu putting forward, well, and that he says that he does, and that he wrote about in his book, is he puts forward an extreme opening offer, and then once that is out there and it kind of creates the shock, then he's able to negotiate to a middle position. So at least, um, you know, from the persuasion filter, he's saying you, you don't really, really don't have that much to, to fear about this uh, so-called Muslim ban. Anyways, you guys are back. So, so I mean, welcome back. Scott, Scott Adams is always on point when it comes to that stuff. I mean, he's, he's really studied it. And that's kind of like what I saw when he did it. I was like, okay, well, that's, that's a good extreme position to start with. And uh, he's going to kind of obviously <laughs> renegotiate down a little bit. But there, there. Uh, Neil wanted to say something before we. Cut Just off. a quick observation that um, this exact same debate took place at the height of the British Empire. Um, you know, it filtered down into the media and among the people, but it was primarily among the elites. Um, they realized they were in a catch twenty-two. They had this empire, but it was creating inevitable um, economic chains of, of feedback, where people from their colonies were coming back with the resources. Uh, sometimes for economic reasons, there were no jobs where they were. A lot of the Irish went to London for work. Um, and, and because it was the light, it was, the, you know, the, the, the chief economic center of, of this empire. Um, and then the big debate among the elites of the British Empire was, um, oh God, what do we do here? 
because you had those who they generally were in a, of the mentality that they were mass-based and they wanted to put a stop to it at all costs. They were prepared to actually expire another. Let's just settle on what we have and not push any further. In the end, the other side of the debate won, which was, no, no, we must keep going. And they accepted uh, a more liberal worldview where others would inevitably come uh, of other races and other types of people. So um, I just wanted to make that historical parallel with what's going on in the States at the moment. So, um, so I I someone else. That sounds okay now. Uh, anyway, so the idea is that if Trump is pitching pitched the stall on this idea of some kind of pulling America back to uh, a position a kind of more isolationist position as in drawing American troops back home and that kind of stuff. Yeah, he's going to run into problems with people who make a lot of money uh, from the kind of American intervention that has gone on for, for quite a long time and um, also people who may actually get their jollies from kind of bombing countries and invading countries and get kicks out of that. But um, there's nothing to say that America can't uh, rein its horns in a little bit and <clears throat> engage in savvy or smart economic policies that will maintain uh, you know, America's relative wealth um and if he's going to do that then it makes sense that he would stop that he would uh pass this kind of or try and get push this as executive order through uh where foreign people from foreign countries uh are limited in, in terms of numbers and, and the way in which they can enter the united states it's not just an open door, open door policy anymore because america the american military and the american government essentially doesn't is no longer going to have an open door policy to in terms of going out into the world, therefore, they should curtail the amount of uh, the flow that comes back. Because, like, uh, and this, I don't know if people heard what I was saying, but if uh, this policy of, of America going around the world is that, you know, opening countries up to, for American corporations to establish themselves in countries to use the resources and stuff, those, those companies inevitably employ a large number of foreign nationals in those countries, and that kind of Americanization of that country establishes a very real and very direct connection back to America and you inevitably end up with flows of people from those countries going to America because it's like, you know, they go on business trips, they go back there for training, that kind of stuff, they get exposed to American culture and it, and it, it leaves open enough. Uh, there's nothing inherently wrong with um, Trump's attitude of America primary performance for Americans, except in the sense that as a thing, uh, Personally, said most famously that before him was Hitler, and obviously Hitler, the Hitler analogy carried all sorts of like, problems. And this is what all these social justice kind of people are dreaming about, which is that you know they clamp down on all the minorities and put them all, throw them all into camps and all this kind of stuff. And uh, but there's nothing. It's, it's just it's ridiculous. It's, it's hysteria, effectively, and there's no sanity. Uh, very little sanity being being. Or very very few sane approaches are being taken to it. You know. Uh, so, Jason. So, so yeah, there, there's two points. I think the greatest tragedy of the 20th century is that intellectuals in America and in the West generally have been able to scrub national socialism of the socialist aspect and have whittled down Nazism to just Hitler and racism and have not 
understood the expansionist policies of, of Germany, the socialist policies of Germany, and what it really represented. So when people make a comparison to Trump, there is no legitimate comparison to Trump and Hitler. There is more of a comparison between Barack Obama and Hitler. Barack Obama was a democratic socialist president who exported democracy all over the world, bombed lots of countries. He was an expansionist. He was expanding the American empire all the time, claiming to be something else. He was more like Hitler than Trump. And it drives me nuts because the, the intellectuals in the West have completely removed all of the aspects of socialism and its ideology and secularism and all the stuff from national socialism, which was the national socialist worker party and just left the one thing, which was, Oh, anti-Semitism and Hitler had a lot of power. And then they say, then anybody who comes up and does anything, they compare Putin to Hitler, you know? And yeah. I mean, Putin is nothing like Hitler. He's not an expansionist. He's a, he's a, he is a patriot and a nationalist. And the same thing with, with Trump. He wants to withdraw the expansionist policies of the U.S. and he wants to be isolationist. So he's not anything like Hitler. Barack Obama was closer to Hitler than Donald Trump ever will be. Right. That's the first thing. The first thing is you have to understand Steve O'Bannon is his chief strategist. Steve O'Bannon is more or less an Steve alt writer. What? Bannon, right? Bannon, Steve Bannon. He is an alt writer. Alt writers, what they're obsessed with for, for a large part is Marcuse critical theory and cultural Marxism. They are obsessed with it. If you go on any of them, they're talking about this on a regular basis. When Mussolini was ejected from the Communist Party, he was ejected because he noticed that the World Revolution wasn't working because they didn't account for national identity. So he came up with fascism, which is national socialism in a totalitarian state. And it leverages, instead of worker identity, it leverages national identity. Hitler did the same kind of thing. right? Marcuse, Gramsci, the Frankfurt School, they went and they analyzed the failure of international socialism, which is communism, and they understood it to be exactly the same problem as Mussolini. But instead of coming up with a solution, they said, we have to deconstruct nationalism. We have to destroy national identity. They talk about it. Cultural identity has to be destroyed in order for them to implement their utopian socialist paradise. So their idea was partially the open borders, melting pot idea. We bring in as many cultures as we can. This will ultimately destroy. They call it the browning of America. It's, it's a really a thing. They, they bring in other cultures, mix them around. They overcome the, the national majority and basically destroy cultural identity. That's the whole idea. It's deconstructing cultural identity. These alt writers, Steve Bannon, they're obsessed with this stuff. Whether or not you agree with it or not is irrelevant. But if Steve Bannon is the chief strategist of Trump, his reason for his immigration policies and this Muslim ban is largely because of that idea of that philosophy, that whole thing that they have to stop this deconstruction of the national American identity, which is why he's all drumming on patriotism, all this stuff. The alt writers, they're all tribalist patriots. You know, America is, you know, for, for Americans. Mm -hmm. That's where he's getting his stuff from. It's not, there's obviously this sort of economic connection between them, but largely what they didn't understand at that time when, when they were having this argument was that when you import as, as Ann Coulter calls them peasant cultures, 
uh, in large quantities, they degrade the cultural identity. It's just what happens. That's what they noticed. It wasn't so much an economic problem as it was a cultural problem that maybe they weren't able to articulate quite so well, but it has later been articulated as a cultural issue that you cannot be importing uh, Muslims and Mexicans and all these different people into your country until, unless you're going to make it Muslim in Mexico. It's, you're mm-hmm. going to have a collapse and a collapse of your, your national identity. Mm-hmm. That's what the alt-right believes, whether or not it's right or wrong. You know, that's what Steve Bannon is all about. Breitbart, they're very sort of close to that ideology. So that's going to be driving Trump and his policies. Right. It was interesting that they, part of this immigration uh, <laughs> law that the, uh, our policy that they're, they're trying to pass was that uh, was that they interview or question prospective uh, entrants from from foreign countries about their uh, religious beliefs, right. uh, and that they would prioritize Christians right. from foreign countries, in particular Muslim countries. This is uh, the most again. persecuted religion in the world. <laughs> Christianity, from their perspective, yeah. certainly. I mean, ninety thousand Christians were were killed in with, with ISIS. Apparently, that's the number that they're right. giving. Right. Not as true, right. but I mean, in the Muslim world, the people but, who but, are persecuted are Christians, right? Muslims. Well, it's not not necessarily to save them, but rather to make sure that uh, people who get en- get a to entry into what have uh, cultural and slash religious values that are in line with what they understand as the established, uh, you know, cultural, is, cultural and religious beliefs in in America. You know, so you know. I mean, Islam and, and, and Christianity are not good bedfellows. They never will be. Well, they no matter what any progressivist says, yeah. they will never be very good. Yeah. They're antithema to each other. Mm-hmm. Right? Yeah, well, I mean, I mean, I don't think there's anything wrong with that idea. Again, it's it's people have been infected with this idea of multi multiculturalism and stuff. And the problem with it is they don't understand and even multi not just multiculturalism, but that expands into multi, um, multi et- ethnicity and that kind of stuff. Obviously, you're not talking about, you know, America is a multi eth- ethnic country. Oh, it's biracial. Well, bi- well, biracial. Yeah, I suppose biracial. Um, until very until 1965, with you know Ted Kennedy's um, um, immigration policy, it's a biracial country and has been for 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 most of its most of its history. Yeah. It's white and black people. Right. Those are Americans. The rest are immigrants. <laughs> so, uh, but there's nothing, uh, I don't see anything necessarily wrong with that when you take into consideration basic human kind of subconscious drives and motivations and, and beliefs that are that are below the surface. And, um, and I think <clears throat> all of these social justice warriors and, and, and progressives Etc. Who are promoting multi- multiculturalism, etc. That they don't understand uh, human nature effectively, yeah. and they are getting beyond their station. Effectively, it's human beings getting beyond their station. Yeah, some people can look at it and say, "Well, people need to aspire to be better." Yes, you should, but within the limits of, or within the limits and an objective understanding of what human beings are capable of, and protecting against worst-case scenarios that could develop from uh, an activation of latent or unconscious human motivations. And just to make the kind of point, I suppose, is, uh, I've used this analogy before, if you're, you can take your pick, but if you're a white person, jumped in the middle of Detroit in a poor neighborhood, 
at night. And on the left side of the street, there's a group of black guys. On the right side of the street, there's a group of white guys. Without even thinking about it, you know which side of the street you're going to go to. And if you're a black person, you know which side of the street you're going to go to. That's an instinctive response. And the thing is, human beings, these people, these progressives are getting far beyond their station effect. They're not taking stock of human nature and the things that drive human actions and human kind of emotions and stuff. It's like, it's like little children wanting to be all grown up and have fanciful ideas about stuff and say, yes, that's very good, little Johnny. But, you know, you're basically not old enough to have those ideas or certainly you're not old enough to, to implement those ideas because you don't understand the objective reality and, the, and the, the truth about human nature and the level, the developmental level of things and how it can all go horribly wrong. And if you want to manage a country in the right way, you have to have a very good understanding of human nature and human motivation and where people are at as a nation, for example, or even globally. You can expand it out to understand where human beings are at, their level of psychological, emotional, whatever, spiritual progression, and tailor your your policies and, and your, your laws, whatever, if you're in a position to, to, to implement those, tailor them to that level of development of the human being. Don't be getting beyond yourself and creating a massive mess by, by basically giving match, matches to a kid, you know? Well, I mean, the, I think the rank and file, you're right. The rank and file social justice warrior kind of doesn't understand how how different cultures really work. But uh, up in the ideological echelons of social justice, they do. They literally talk about the point of multiculturalism is to deconstruct white identity. This is what they say. They say they hold up signs. You can find videos of them holding up signs. You know, sit down, let us abolish the white man type of thing. Why? Because... They have because America is a predominantly biracial country. It's whites and it's blacks. And those are the two people who are under the most threat from multiculturalism. The black community, of course, has been being destroyed by the Democratic Party and the leftists for decades. I mean, completely and totally obliterated its world. And the, the bringing in of all of these sort of, as Ann Coulter calls them, peasant cultures to basically create um, ethnic and cultural voting blocks that they can control in a war to basically pretty much breed white mm. people out of existence. They want to basically, they call it the browning of America. <laughs> this is what they want. They want to basically deconstruct the culture, remove the culture so that they can then implement their utopia. It's not, of course they're crazy, right? They're totally crazy. Stupid people. If they, they fuck everything up. They have every time they've tried it, you know? Every time they try it, they mess everything up. But they're going to try it again, and this is what they're kind of doing. And it's basically become kind of like, and this is why you see the sort of alt-right has become so hard about this, and Trump and, and all the uh, Trump's election and the way that people are acting is because they're, it's an existential threat to them. It's compared to the American identity right now. Immigration is probably the number one threat to the American identity. Well, here's the problem. Here's let me let me play devil's advocate advocate here a little bit. The alt right, let's say, and the people who voted for Trump, right, would probably, if you ask them, say that they support the idea of American values, America for Americans, and if they're white, they would say, kind of uh, white Christian, white Anglo-Saxon Protestants, or Christian values. And the black people who vote for Trump would say America for Americans and, you know, 
but rights for us, but whatever. They're not going to rock the boat too much because they they value certain things about about America for Americans. <coughs> the progressives see that as a kind of uh, anachronistic, kind of backwards, uh, retarded kind of uh, uh, approach to 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 life and, and and human development, and they would see multiculturalism. They have this ideal that. Well, we're all human beings, and we should all live together. We should all, and and the, in, in the plurality of, of human relations and stuff, there's it's mature, and you get to share kind of different cultures and different ideas and different perspectives, and that's actually a step of progress compared to what the alt right and the Trump supporters would, uh, which is like uh, really fairly fairly basic. So name me uh, one. They, name me one successful country over a long period that adopted that policy of open borders and complete cultural, no cultural identity, nothing like that. Just everybody, just come in. Let's all just have this this sort of Bulworthian project of of, of racial deconstruction by screwing each other. Everybody, what country really actually implemented that and? has been thriving and successful? Well, probably not many, if any. Uh, what countries are, are struggling and having problems, massive uh, cultural and demographic problems, um, uh, national health care problems, what countries are having those? Are those the countries that practice open borders and maximization of immigrants? So what's the reason why it doesn't work? Uh, are you saying that human beings are racist? No, they're racist. 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 They're Right. Those people are ditto whatever. There are between different groups. Oh, cultures. Different between cultures that are not uh, mutually compatible. No, absolutely not. They're not mutually co- compatible. And, I mean, um, American culture is not compatible with South American culture by any stretch of the imagination. So it's a horrific mix. Okay. And Muslim culture as well. They're just not mixable. They're oil and water. Yeah. Can I throw up a couple of facts? Yes. <laughs> um, well, I'm not sure this first example is a fact. Um, it's going to be a while before we get numbers. But <clears throat> we had an actual Syrian refugee living in Germany contact us this week, and he said that, as far as he can see, at least half, if not more, of the 100,000 or so that reached Germany in a large wave over about a three-month period last year have all since left Germany. Um, just putting that there as an observation. <laughs> mm. But the main fact I want to draw attention to is that President Obama, in his eight years in power, in quotes, in power, um, imported more people than all the U.S. presidents from 1900 to George W. Bush. No, he didn't. So maybe we can assess that in the context of what we discussed. That's, that's false. It's an alternative fact. Uh, I heard Ben Swan no, no, give I, the detailed numbers on that just, just two days ago. Maybe Ben Swan's throwing up shit, but he's right. pretty good. No, I, Oh, you guys are back. No, we're back. Are we back, Harrison? Get, get rid of that terrible so, so, communist music. Neil had something. He had a challenge. Yeah, Neil's challenge. Well, uh, Muslims and Christians mix perfectly well in Syria. 
un, until it was destroyed by. Well, but they've been living together US for two thousand years, so, right? Yeah. Um, so what? <laughs> what destroyed an otherwise harmonious balance? You know. Again, it comes back to the West. I, w- I would um, ask because I because I don't know were the were the Christians defined as demi in Syria. Demi what? Demi Christian? Demi. Demi is is a, is a designation in, in Islam, which is an unbeliever that is allowed to continue in his faith so long as they pay a tax. So if they were defined as demis in Syria, then I have a problem with it. But but again, the destruction of Syria was a, was a was a project of the American for no reason was no real policy reasons destroyed the country. But I'd be interested in the Christians in Syria for any long time, whether or not they were from the Emmys. And if they were, were they taxed? The main point I'd like to make we don't tax Muslims. The main point I'd like to make is that I think there's far too much emphasis here on these results we see in the U.S. today being the work of, of outcomes. Mm-hmm. I think it's far more likely most of these things are structural results. Mm-hmm of what the U.S. has done over the last century. Um, and, and then it throws up unexpected outcomes, and people go, oh, my God, what's going on? And then it's easy to put a narrative on it mm-hmm. after the fact. Um, so I, this, this thing that is, you know, like, I mean, I'm sure I don't discount what you said about how the, they've written such things, you know, we have to brown America and this will be the solution for the problems as they saw them then. Uh, those are insane ideas, of course. Um, yeah. They're racist. Well, look at it this way. I mean, obviously it's not. Do, America, do white Americans and black Americans get on together? There's a history there. There's a history. There's a history between black and black. Blacks have been in America since the very beginning. They were slaves for, for about 89 years. There was a civil war over it. There's been this long history between them. They're as, a, as American as any white person. And anybody who says differently is some filthy racist mm. because, uh, you know, they've basically been there since the beginning. We brought them over. Everyone pretty much admits we bought them over unfairly. We did a lot of horrible things. But now they're there, and they're there to stay, and it's America is a biracial nation at the very base mm. because it's been that way since the beginning, and it's going to be that way hopefully forever, I think, because I think that the black community is an essential component of America. It's a central part of American culture. It's, it's, it's inseparable from American culture. You can't really say American culture without also considering uh, black American right. culture. It's just, they're just too intertwined. But all of these other foreign cultures, Muslim culture, none of them are particularly integral. None of them are particularly needed from the American identity perspective. Whether or not they can live in America, any culture can live in America because Americans happen to be pretty nice. We don't tax people for having different beliefs. They are allowed to set up their churches and synagogues. I mean, you can, one of them can literally suggest putting a, uh, a mosque ground zero. And it's actually dated. <laughs> that means the most absurd thing ever. Um, is Muslims coming to America because what what they've done could all the terrorist acts they've done to it. Here's the thing: they didn't do those things. Right, but the American people did it. 
Exactly. It's a lie. It's right, true. right. But everybody False. believes that lie. Yeah. yeah. And that's why that all this is leading to one place, complete and utter chaos. Be completely well, it probably will, but I mean, I mean Putin has no good. problem using using Muslim terror and Islamic terrorism to, to, to get his policy, yeah. And, and then he forward. and he endorses and speaks at the opening of one of the biggest mosques in Russia, right. in downtown Moscow, totally. and doesn't say y'all are banned from our country. Mm-hmm. That's a very right. different internal approach to the problem. But Kazakhstan is a largely Muslim state, part of Russian culture is living with them. They've been there for a very long time, and they're going to continue to be there. Well, you know, I mean, the thing about it is we'd have, have to go back to human go back to human nature here to try and understand this. Go back thousands of years to people, uh, the different countries, different peoples have uh, wars with each other throughout history. Sure they do. Sure, they, they did, right? I mean, very often it was for it was for resources or for yeah. Uh, you know, whatever, conquest, whatever, want your stuff, kind of a pathology in a certain sense. And in an ideal world, in theory, everybody could live together. Human beings don't have a problem. Black, brown, white, yellow, whatever, don't have a problem living together in theory in a certain world. Uh, But when you factor in uh, human nature and pathology in human nature and stuff, it doesn't take long for things to go pear-shaped because all it takes is for there to be a history, even relatively recent history, of one group of people fighting with another group of people, and then those two people don't get along. And if it's divided in religion, well, then those two, those two religions right. are, are not going to live together. They're not going to be very friendly. There's going to be efforts to kind of, you know, uh, hands across the water type thing and, and, and bridge divides and make peace and stuff. But it takes as long as it took to create the problem in the first place through the wars, uh, to, to, if it's even possible, to, to, to fix it, you know. Uh, and in that sense... I mean, America's, you know, 15, 20-year-long war on terror, which has been effectively war on Muslim terror, i.e. war on Muslim countries, well, you're not doing, I mean, to t- turn around then after 20 years of that and say that Muslims are don't like us because they're a problem when you've been invading their countries for a long time. Well, you know, you don't really have the moral high ground to stand there and say that really uh, with, 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 you know, or then say that we can't have Muslims in the country because... They, they don't really mesh with American culture. Well, yeah, no. Um, the problem of, of human nature, but more problem of pathology in human nature, the fact that within human nature, uh, or psychological, if you want to call it, was the idea that, like, pathology is up, you know, having a predatory kind of uh, attitude, manipulating people. Fight with all people and people, and then you can't get on with these people because we, your grandfather fought a war against them. So how can you like that person, whether it's a person of different color, race, whatever, blah blah. Here, it's very easy to create divisions between right. human beings, beings on any on any basis, on the basis of skin color or religion or culture or what food you like or whatever, you know. But at so, the same time, it's not impossible for it to be a kind of melting pot. Under the right leadership and with the with people with, I suppose that are are made aware of the potential for those divisions to exist and to be not not to be good for anybody concerned, you know. So I mean, let's say say for instance, everything you said is correct, right? And now strip everything away and put it into this situation. Let's say that you have a house and somebody else has a house down the street. 
And for the last 15 years, you've been going over and setting off M80s and just torturing and being a horrible person to them, right? You've been doing all this bad stuff. And then all of a sudden you realize, you know what? I was so wrong. So you go over and you say, look, I'm sorry. Why don't you come live in my guest house? That probably wouldn't be a good idea. No. You know, it would probably be nice if you could make amends, but I don't think if, you know, taking from your perspective, taking mm-hmm. this whole 15 years of the war on terror and it's all the whole fake terrorism thing, it's all engineered by the U.S. They've just been going over there and poking that bee's nest. Mm. Well, you don't poke the bee's nest and then take it into your house. Right. And that, unfortunately, right now, regardless of whether or not we talk about the large yeah, scale the right issues, you know, I mean, it's probably not a really good idea no. right so now. So in that sense, Trump is being practical based on the based on the situation that he inherited right from, from that perspective from sure. someone else right he's just i mean obviously he can't just come in and say oh i'm going to make it all better he's he's dealing with a backlog of massive kissy, issues kissy. that have, that, have been, that have been that have been created by someone else he's just been like a, right. a big crappy file has been dumped on his lap and said hey you go deal with that and you right. do the best you can and but as neil was saying I think it's a kind of it's a it's a bit of a, an insoluble or intractable problem. I don't think he's going to necessarily be able to deal with it. Uh, first of all, it's very difficult to sort it, and number two, the attempts that he makes to sort it are going to make people just lose the plot. People are going to freak out know, because the, so it's a major problem of what our stands for under under Obama. That's what people believe. So that, in a sense, is something that Trump has to deal with because that's, he's dealing with a, a set of beliefs that he can't just turn around and overturn. And at the same time, there's vested interest to make sure that belief isn't overturned because, you know what, we worked for years to demonize Muslims as crazy terrorists so that we could justify going after Osama bin Laden in Afghanistan, right? Oh, yeah, and we just happened, we tripped when we got there and fell and ended up staying for 20 years. But we just, I don't know, we just kind of stayed there. I I mean, Osama bin Laden's dead. He wasn't even there after we got there. And... But uh, but honestly, we have no other reason to be in Afghanistan except to look for Osama bin Laden, even though he's dead. Look, we're still looking for him, even though we killed him, supposedly. That's why we're there. I swear to God. Why don't you believe me? Does that not sound like a plausible reason? Well, here's the, here's one problem. is it the, the, the Middle Eastern project in its current form has been going before the fall of the British Empire. You know, sort of Lawrence of Arabia type of stuff. And the redrawing of it. The thing is, is this didn't start with America. This really, it, you know, whether or not all the details of it being pushed aside, there has been for since basically the inception of Islam, there has been a repeated intersection between both people. There have been periods of peace and periods of, of battle that have happened. Between what, what people? Between basically the Christians and the Muslims. And it is a basic fact that Constantinople was a Christian nation and now it is a Muslim nation. 
right? Since and 14, Alexandria, fifty-three, yeah, yeah. I mean, so from 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 that sort of cultural identity, the the, the whole idea that. Somehow there's an inherited cultural identity between people. People feel some sort of connection with ancestors in the past. They say Paul's letter to the Corinthians, Paul's letter to the Ephesians and all these different, all these different areas, Ephesus, Constantinople, most of these areas are now a hundred percent Muslim. North Africa was originally Christian. Now it's Muslim. They have this, they have this thread going through them. That is that there is a complete clash of of the two religious civilizations. Clash of civilizations, and that is an that is the verbalization of a kind of feeling that has been around for a very long time. All to the you know uh, king of Spain, Eric, Philip of Aragon, or whatever it was, you know, was pushing up the wars, right? I mean, this has been boiling inside of. And it, look, Rome went in and ba- and balkanized the entire area. Took over Syria, uh, took over the Levant, took over uh, two thousand uh, one hundred years ago, right? This has been going on for such a long time that sort of taking that, looking at one little era of peace between these two peoples, can makes you think that oh, we can all get along, but it's been a really big problem, and we're not going to solve it in one year or with you know it, allowing extra immigration in, and things won't boil over again. They've been boiling over and over and over again for two thousand years. This is this is really a whole other discussion because it is. Yeah, I mean we've 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 pared it down to the last century, which is already a majorly ta- broad task. Um, if you want to make this into a millennial discussion, and then we, we've actually gone further. We brought up cavemen and right. the very essence of human nature, which is an even broader discussion. Um, the, the thing is, in the context of where we're at now and the source of Pathocracy and polarization. This is why it's limited to, in quote unquote, the American Empire. And you're right; it's not. It didn't originate there. It originated with the British. But um, the, the the even broader strokes we bring out when we when we say, "Well, we," and I presume you mean the white race, although it's obviously more defined than that because obviously the Russians are excluded from it. So it's Western Europeans, I guess, not Eastern Europeans, or, or Europeans or something like that. We versus them, and it was always so. The problem is that history is not so simple. There, are, there was an era before this current era, where before the Crusades, where there was no major clash, no boiling point. No, I mean, the thing I dislike about this kind of massively broad strokes is that it's the kind of thing that was used by Western commentators in the 1990s when, as we now know, the U.S. primarily, European governments were in on it too, were deliberately instigating violence to pursue a planned policy to break up the Yugoslav Federation. And I remember it still from watching the news at the time. The narrative they were pushing out there was, "'Twas always so, these peoples in the Balkans have these things inside, and it just really boils up, and therefore multi-millennial factors that are the cause and the blame of this, not us and what we're doing. It's inherent in them. Look, it's not our fault, as we give them the guns and say, go ahead, and kill, kill all those uh, Bosnian Muslims or whoever. 
I really just like that because it, it, it's all too convenient for the actual perpetrators of the evil at the time. That's why it suits them. Things like, well, Islam is inherently evil. The reason was always so. It's difficult to, uh, to tease it out, to find someone to blame for it, is because it's not just one thing. It is, you know, kind of uh, cynical and, and fairly evil people in positions of power uh, trying to basically make themselves rich uh, by enacting these policies that the only way they can do that, the way that they see that they can make themselves rich is effectively by dividing people or put, setting people against each other. But in doing that, they're leveraging human nature. And they're creating a, f- a fact. They're saying, you see those two, see those two groups of people over there that are being peace, that have been peaceful for a while. I think they might eventually soon fight with each other. And all it takes is to, is to go in with that belief, send some of your emissaries in there with a few weapons, stir a few, stir a little thing, set a, set a fire. You know, flick a match in and then let it go. And then you can stand back and say, well, you see, it happens. And yet it does happen. And it, sometimes that happens all by itself without uh, much intervention from, from some kind of uh, shady characters. So it's, it's very difficult because it's, it's, it's both things together. Human nature is an issue. Unless human beings get wise to this shit and say, listen, there's parts of ourselves that we don't know, that we don't understand, that, that we, are, we can be made to react to things against her own wishes and create situations and participate in situations that are uh, are really bad for us, unless we start to figure that out, then we're always going to be victims of it. We're always going to, you know, suffer from it, you know? And so it's, there's two things together there, and it's very hard to say. That's why people don't like you and don't like it when you say, well, it's just those evil people doing it, because it's not simply that. Sure, there are evil powers at work, but they do leverage human nature. You know, and it's human nature, things in humans that need to be sorted out as well. There's an evil, let's say, in human beings that can be provoked in human nature. Well, I mean, the thing is, is, is you tend to collapse identities when you want to point the finger, right? So suddenly it's a them or it's a we when we're sneaking in to give them weapons. And then you sort of like, you know, bring it out and, and, and do this kind of accordion thing where suddenly the West is going in to give these people weapons. At the same time, never happens. like, you go to a country, if I hand you a gun and say, hey, shoot that guy, and you do it, and you're like, well, you shouldn't have given me the gun. Jesus Christ, I'm not responsible for it. And the thing is, is this kind of stuff is happening for so long that the narrative of the idea that this is a vast sort of evil psychopathic conspiracy has a little bit of a problem because it's nothing new. Right. And the whole idea that all of a sudden, you know, the stuff in the Balkans we create doesn't hold, you know, who's been creating it for 10,000 years. Right. So, so I don't, I don't get it. It's all of a sudden today, you know, everybody would, everybody would be living in this peaceful egalitarian paradise if it weren't for those shucks, the darn American deep state doing all this stuff. Oh my God. And it's like, I'm sorry, but to me, it just seems illusory as an explanation. Well, I don't think it's illusory because, like I said, there is a truth to it. Well, I mean, there's a certain amount of truth to it. There's a certain amount of truth to deep, deep There were state. people going in there and, and shipping in guns yeah. and stirring up fires. Yeah, there were. And yeah, I, I'm not denying that at right. all. What I'm saying is, the fact wow, that, how easy they found it. Yeah. 
you yeah, know, it's too easy. It's, you know, some American in a greasy suit with a couple of AK-47s posts up in the Balkans and says, more hey, more. why don't you guys shoot each other? Even more and, than that. And they're like, whoa, yeah, let's do it. More than that, a combination of money. You're just shipping a bunch of money. Right. You can, well, buy, I mean, you can pay people to do it or you, or you <laughs> put in a good bit of work to establish a certain ideology. Uh, that, that takes hold, and and, I, and this is that's where it's cynical, you know, where they actually go in and 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 talk to people about about rights and freedom and stuff. People just working in the fields who never really had a problem working in the fields. They might have grumbled now and again or whatever, but you walk in like kind of like in communism, and you go, "Hey, worker, do you not see how you're being oppressed?" <laughs> and then rise up, take your take, take you know uh, what do you call the uh, plowshares into pitchforks, basically. You know what I mean? Uh, and uh, and, and, and March, you know, people are too easily manipulated. It's true, but well, I mean, look, you have like between Kitson. those two things, remove the freaking manipulator. You, you have you know? Kitson, right? You have these low intensity operations where they go in and they send in these death squads and they put on blackface. That I'm totally like, okay, that's some seriously messed up stuff. But when they go in, when 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 some sort of arms dealer goes in there, sells them a bunch of guns, and they're really happy to start a war. I'm less inclined to blame the West on that one. I'm just less inclined. Yeah. You know, I'm not willing to, 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 to join up with this whole vast Western con- conspiracy. I mean, you know, we didn't make Saudi Arabia the way it is in the sense that we're not in there micromanaging their state. They're batshit crazy on their own. They just love lopping off heads and not letting their white women drive. I mean, that's not an American policy, right? Policy. And here you do it. Like, oh, no. Please don't make us jump on people's heads. Please don't make us throw gays off the building. Please don't make me our wives and not the, drive or vote. But they're giving them lots of weapons. So oh, yeah, but they just love doing it. So you know what? I'm not really feeling for them. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's part of the problem. It's, uh, it's a total, total lack of responsibility. Um, I think we're gonna uh, end here because you know it hasn't been a good open point of view of um, our connection and copy. We've been cut off, you know, and during this uh, right thing or but delay and everything. So um, we're gonna call our night. Uh, we you enjoyed the discussion or actually heard. We will come back to it at some point. Uh, some point in the future, uh, but I'm sure there'll be other stuff that'll come up in, uh, between now and then, um, and we'll keep on top of that as well. So thanks for listening, and thanks to Harrison for being there. Thank you, Harrison. For Mark support. <laughs> thanks, guys. Until uh, until next yeah until next week. See you, Harrison. See you, everyone. See you guys. Yes.